Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your households, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, male and female, two each of animal that are unclean, a male and uh, his female. Verse 3. Also seven of each bird of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So, chapter 6 is before the flood. Chapter 6 is during, sorry, chapter 6 is before the flood. Chapter 7 is during the flood. And chapter 8 is after the flood. And so we're in chapter 7 when the flood is just about to start here. Now, sometimes as you go through scripture, you can't really see time. If you are an average, or uh, love reading actually, should I say, and you read novels, sometimes you see that clearly in a novel or in a story. They say three days passed, or so on and so forth. You don't see that in the Bible often. And so, how much time has passed between chapter 6 and chapter 7? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, it says Noah was 500 years old. But then if you look at Genesis 6, 6, it says he was 600 years old. 100 years has passed between chapters 6 and 7. 100 years. That's our entire lifetime, right? And so, it probably took Noah 100 years to build this ark. And this ark is 450 feet long, um, I think 50 feet wide and 30 feet tall. It's massive ship. And he built this without any power tools. For those that have done construction, my dad uh, is a, f- a master carpenter. And we've remodeled our kitchen. We've done this wall and multiple other things. But those are all with power tools. He had a handsaw and he would have to cut all the wood. It took him and his boys 100 years to build. Now that's a long project, wouldn't you agree? Imagine if you had to do a project for school that took you 100 years. You would just die. What's the longest project you guys have worked on? Like a week, a month? It gave me like a month. I'll take like an hour though. A month? You you put it off at the last minute and do it in an hour? Okay. Technically, it's supposed to take like eight months, but I usually do it in less than a week. Which is? Uh, which it's is, history day. It's something that... Okay. Usually for like a thesis, uh, when you're about to graduate um, uh, for your doctorate, you have to write like this huge 600-page essay thing. I think it, maybe I'm over-exaggerating, but it's a lot, okay? It's, yes, it's a beast. And you usually start it at the beginning of school, so that way by the end of the time and you're about to graduate, it's finished. It's a long project. But that's nothing compared to uh, Noah. 
in building this ark. God gave him the blueprints. He says, here's the dimensions. Here's how to build the rooms and put tar on the outside so water doesn't get in. And he builds this boat. Working on this for about 100 years. Can you imagine what his neighbors thought? Now, if you do a project at your house, your neighbors know what's going on, right? You're doing construction. You're tearing things apart. There's music playing or something. You hear it. I went biking uh, the other day because I like to bike. And all of a sudden, I was uh, riding across the street, and I hear this loud noise. I'm like, who's doing construction? It was so loud. Can you imagine the attention that this brought to Noah as he's building for 100 years and his neighbor's like, yo, what up, Noah? Hey, is the rain coming yet? Ha <laughs> ha, loser. Um, because it's like God told him that rain's going to come and nobody's heard of rain before because the water came up from the ground to water the plants and everything. That's how God designed it in the beginning. And so they never heard of rain. It's possibly that there was no clouds in the sky during this time. And so the attention that this brought onto Noah, people were curious. They were looky-loose. They would come by and look at, hmm, what is he doing? Okay, now he's onto the second floor. Interesting. Oh, he has the roof on now. And making probably fun of him the whole time. But through Noah's actions, he was a preacher of righteousness. He would share with them, hey, there's judgment coming. And this is how you can get saved. But no one listened. Now, building an ark is no easy task. It took a lot of energy, time, and effort. And I would say living for the Lord is no easy task. It takes time, energy, and effort. You can't just coast through the Christian life. No, 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 no. The Christian life is basically impossible without Jesus. It's all walking on water. And it brings us to verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. Come. I think that word is interesting because it's, it's God is inviting Noah now. He's finished the ark and he says, come into the ark. Notice that God didn't say, go into the ark. He says, come into the ark. It's like God himself is present in the ark and he's inviting Noah and his family to come join him. See, God actually extends an invitation to all of us, to all humanity. He gives out several invitations. How many of you have been to a wedding before? I've been to several weddings. I'm actually going to be in uh, Daniel Edwards' wedding in June, on June 4th. And he sent me an invite even. And so we RSVP'd uh, online for that. <clears throat> and... You get this invite. God gives us an invitation. And the first invitation is for salvation. He says, come to me. Come just as you are. Come with all your burdens. Come with all your problems. And I want to help you. It's an invitation into a relationship where God is no longer your enemy, but he becomes your father. He becomes your savior. See, God always says, come first. He doesn't say, hey, Josh, can you actually uh, clean yourself up before you come? Can you uh, fix your attitude and change that before you come? No, no, no. He says, come. And that's the first invitation. It's free. You just have to receive it and respond by faith. 
respond to this invitation to be part of God's family, to become one of his children. And when you partake in that invitation, there's nothing better than that. Becoming a child of God, understanding that relationship. The second invitation that he extends to us is for service. After we have received the invitation for salvation, he calls us into a deeper experience with him in his work. God says, hey, I want you to work with me. I want you to join me in the process. Now, I remember growing up, my dad used to always ask us four kids to help him work in the yard, help him do projects. Um, my dad actually owned his own business at one point before the uh, market kind of crashed in 2008 or something like that. And he was, his hopes was that one of us four kids would take on his business. And so we all know how to use power tools. We all know how to do different things, use a skill saw and chop. But he always called us into work with him. And sometimes we dreaded it. Does anybody do that sometimes when your dad or your mom's like, hey, can you help me with this? And you're like, oh man, I really don't want to. But they invite us because they want to experience life together with us. How much more so when it comes to God? He's inviting you and I. He goes, I want you to, I want to work with you. I want to work through you. I want you to experience miracles firsthand. I want you to experience being used firsthand. See, I had received an invitation actually this past weekend to go evangelizing. And we went evangelizing down uh, in Newport, or sorry, uh, Huntington Beach area with Calvary Chapel Marina Valley and the Bible Institute. And I went with these other three guys uh, that were part of kind of this little mini team. And I'm praying like, Lord, who do you want me to talk to? And evangelism's out of my comfort zone. I, this is my comfort zone here. But talking to strangers saying, hey, you're going to go to hell and you need Jesus, doesn't, I don't say that actually. I do it in a very polite way. But it's awkward. And we talked to certain people here and there. I talked to one guy. He was setting up his barbecue, and so he started talking about different things. He had a beer in his hand. And I was like, hey, can I actually talk to you a little bit more? He goes, yeah, you can, unless you're going to preach to me. And I was like, well, I'm not going to preach to you, but I do want to talk to you about Jesus. He's like, I don't want any of that. And I was like, all right, fine. And then um, one of the guys that were with us, his feet got, um, his feet were hurting, so he wanted to sit down because we walked like 12,000 steps that day. And he sat down, and all of a sudden, there was this homeless guy there. And I was like, should I talk to him? Kind of looked at him, like, does he look dangerous? Does he smell? Uh, but then I was like, you know what, I'm going to talk to him. And so I started talking to him, and he was, like, cutting his hair. And all of a sudden, he goes, actually, could you cut my hair for me? I'm shaving my head. And I took off my hat. I was like, dude, I'm bald, too. Um, and I put my hat back on. And he actually gave me the scissors, and I actually cut his hair for him. And I talked with him. Now, I did not expect to do that. That was something random out of the blue. And this guy, his name was John. He, I asked him, like, so you're homeless? He goes, yeah. I was like, if you don't mind me asking, how did you become homeless? He says, over a two-week span. In two weeks, he became homeless. And I was like, wow. Things just changed that fast for him. And that was even before COVID, before all this took place. He said he was on cocaine and different things like that, but he's off of that now. And... He actually has a 15-year-old son 
and his name's Johnny, and his middle name's Quest. So it's Johnny Quest, and it's an old cartoon show. Uh, and so he goes, you know what? I'm doing this to get my life back together so I can have a relationship with him. And I shared the gospel with him, prayed for him. Um, and I think he was Catholic because he kind of did one of these things. Um, and it was just a unique experience. See, God wants to use you in multiple different situations. He's calling you to partake in his service. But sadly, so many Christians take the invitation for salvation, but they're like, that's as far as I go. I, I really don't want to serve in a church. I really don't want to be used by God. They're comfortable with just having salvation. And that shouldn't be. The third invitation that Jesus gives is for rest. So the first is salvation. The second is for service. The next one is for rest. For those who respond to the second invitation and who labor, who serve the Lord, it's exhausting. Even Jesus was exhausted. He says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are we responding to the invitation that God is sending out? Are we RSVPing saying, yes, I'm in. I'm going to be there. Or are we kind of like, oh, I think I have something. Or do we hold on to that invitation until we say, we find something better? Have you ever done that before? Someone invites you to somewhere and you're like, I really kind of don't want to go. And you're like, I might have something. And you're waiting for like something better to take place. And then nothing better happens. And you're like, I guess I got to go. <laughs> are we doing that with God? Because I think when we sing that song in there, there's nothing better than you. I felt so much unbelief in the room. We don't believe there's nothing better than Jesus. We have all these ideas in our heads. Oh, a relationship with a girl is better than Jesus. A relationship with a guy is better than Jesus. Oh, having a family is better than Jesus. Having a purpose, a job, the next newest video game, console, you name it. We have all these ideas, and these ideas become idols in our hearts and our minds because we think if we get this, we'll be fine and satisfied. And Jesus says, no, I'm the only thing that satisfies. Where are we at? Are we responding to this invitation to come into a relationship with God? To relax and rest in His presence and in His Word. And notice the thing about an invitation, there's the option to say no. And Jesus always gives you an option. He doesn't say, you gotta obey me. You gotta love me. He's not like that. He wants love, but He wants it freely given. He wants it freely. And so Noah here, he doesn't say no. He responds. Notice God says come first. But when we respond to that invitation, then he says go. And that's the great commission. Matthew 28, 19, right? He says go into all the world and preach the gospel. For you that are saved and that you've responded to the invitation of God, what's the next step? The next step is to respond and accept the service. 
and say, you know what, I'm going to go out. Wherever you send me, God, I will go. Whoever you want me to go, I will talk to. He says, come into the ark, you and all of your household. Noah's actions saved his entire family from the wrath of God. Think about that. His actions saved his family from the wrath of God. And so our faith can influence our whole family. Is your faith influencing your family? It's a good question to ask. Are you rubbing off on your parents? Because let's be real. Sometimes our parents can get into ruts. Sometimes our parents, their relationship with God can veer off course. And God might want to use you to stir them up to take hold of God again. Is our faith influencing our family? See, my grandpa's faith influenced my mom who influenced me. My grandma's faith influenced my dad who influenced me. And now God is using me to influence my family. And he goes on to say in verse 1, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He says, I have seen you. Does the thought of God seeing us scare us or cause us to be concerned like God's watching? To be honest, I don't think about it that often. But as soon as I thought about God like seeing us, I thought about this clip from Monsters, Inc. where she goes, I'm always watching, Mazowski. Always watching. God's not like that, okay? He's not some creep always watching. He loves us passionately. And he watches us. The thought of God watching us should stir us up. It should be a warning. It should be inspiration. Think about it. For those that play sports or perform, possibly in a play or uh, do music, if you know somebody's in the audience watching that you want to impress, you will play and perform better, won't you? I think we do. And we will, we will try even harder. How much more so if God's watching? Will we put forth more efforts knowing that he's observing us? And the thought of God watching us should bring joy to our hearts because he's in the audience cheering us on, saying, you got this, you got this, keep going, keep pressing in, keep pressing on. God's your biggest cheerleader. <laughs> Honestly, he's on the sidelines screaming at you, not like yelling at you like one of those coaches. He's screaming with excitement, with passion, he says, you can do this. I've given you everything. I've given you the church. I've given you my word. I've given you my spirit. Come on, you've got this. He believes in you more than you believe in yourself. He says, I've seen you that you are righteous before me in this present generation. I liked the word are in there. You are righteous. Because guess what? God sees what we are when we are blinded by our thoughts and blinded by what other people say about us. Trust me, I heard all those words growing up that are hurtful. My older siblings picked on me. My little brother picked on me. 
I used to be chubby, kind of still am, uh, growing up. And my, fam my family would pick on me about that. And it bothered me. We can allow people's words to influence the way we view ourselves. But God said to Noah, you are righteous before me. There's that song by, um, what's her name? She says, you say I am loved. Lauren Daigle, that's it. Lauren Daigle. I think that song's powerful. You say I am loved. You say I am this. You say I am that. You say I am this. It matters what God says more than anything. He wants to define us, and our identity should be rooted in Him. See, when man's ways please the Lord, God always lets others know. He's kind of like a proud dad. Yep, that's my daughter over there. She's pleasing me. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's my son over there. He's righteous. He's, this, he's excited. And he lets other people know, yes, that person is mine. That child, that man or woman. Verse 2. He's told to take seven of every clean animal and two of every unclean animal. What's the purpose of these seven clean animals? Well, I don't know if Noah was told in the beginning what the purpose was. He was just told to do it. Later on, we see in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, that he did sacrifice them unto the Lord. And then in verse 4, it says, After um, seven days, I will come and cause it to rain. Dude, one week left until it pours and rains and the whole earth is flooded. What if you had one week left to live? Or one week left until they threw you into a rocket ship and sent you out into space? I don't know. <laughs> one week left and all of humanity was going to be destroyed. And verse 5 says, Noah did all according to what God had commanded him. The Bible tells us over and over that Noah did, Noah did, Noah did what God told him to do. I think if you guys remember from last week, I challenged you. What is God telling you? What is God saying to you? Now are you being obedient to what God is telling you? The things that God has spoken to your hearts are you being obedient? Are you putting those things into practice? Noah did just that. Let's look at verses 6 through 12. In verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah and his sons, his wife and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, of the 70th day, their months may be really weird, 70th day of a month, all right, um, of the month, 
on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open and the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine what that must have been like when all these animals started coming to you and you're on the ark just sitting there and two by two, you see like these little penguins waddling up. You see giraffes coming. You see some T-Rexes like coming on board too. You see like lions and animals that used to hunt you down and scare you and terrify you. They're coming up to you like all polite and like chill. Um, because they think about this. They had all these animals and none of them fought on board. Confined to close quarters, they probably were just all peaceful. Following the command of the Lord. This is incredible. Two frogs. You think about all the insects that were on board. This must have been interesting. Now, how many animals did Moses actually take on the ark with him? Moses? Oh, sorry. I actually wrote Moses. Noah. How many animals did Noah take on the ark with him? Actually, okay, sorry. Funny story. The reason why I did that, I think I was going to trick you. When we were down at the beach evangelizing this past weekend, there was one guy from uh, Ray Comfort's ministry on a box talking to an audience. And he was paying people if he, they could answer the questions correctly. And so this one guy steps up. And so he did an IQ test. And he kind of read these questions. And he, one of the questions was, how many animals went on uh, the ark with Moses? And he's like, two. And so he tried to answer all these ones, but they were all like trick questions because there's no animals on the ark with Moses because it was Noah, right? So anyways, it was pretty funny watching him answer these uh, questions because he got getting nervous and like kind of fidgety on like the platform and then he kind of stepped away and walked away. Um, so we really don't know how many animals were on the boat because it says two of every kind. How many kinds were there? I have no idea. So we don't know. Verse 11, it says, all the fountains of the deep were broken up. Water came from under the earth. Think about this. Have you guys been to Old Faithful and Yellowstone before? I have. Can you imagine all of a sudden just the earth snapping and water gushing up from underneath the earth, flooding our planet? They actually have done studies that there's water underneath the earth pockets of it. I think even in Israel, on one of the mountains, they've, they say that there's water under the mountain because it says when Jesus steps on that mountain, it splits in two and water comes gushing forth. So like even geology and different things like that back up the Bible. Water bursting forth. Can you imagine the tremendous effects that it would have on the surface of the earth? The earth before the flood would change drastically and be different from what we see nowadays. And then it says, the windows of heaven were open, and it started to rain. Something that Moses has never, sorry, Moses, Noah has never seen before. Something new had happened. All of a sudden, water coming from the sky. Like I said earlier, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it talks about this mist coming up from the ground and watering everything. Now rain is introduced. And it's very possible, if you guys remember and cast your mind back to when we first started Genesis, in chapter 1, verse 
6 through 8, it talked about this firmament. Do you remember what that was? That firmament, this, this bubble surrounding the earth, protecting it. And a lot of people believe that this, this bubble that was surrounding the earth was like an insulator, kind of like this cup. This cup is insulated. You can put ice in here, and by next morning, there will still be ice in here because this outer layer prevents the heat from coming in. And the bubble did the same thing around the earth, creating uh, humanity to live longer lives like uh, Noah did in Adam, 900 years. And so this bubble now is possibly deteriorating and falling and collapsing on the earth. And this water is coming and flooding the world. And by this firmament being destroyed, it made life on earth change and shorter. Man's no longer going to live to be 500 years, but possibly only 120 years. It says in Hebrews chapter uh, 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Notice, I want you guys to see something. He was warned about things he has not seen before. What are some things that we are warned about that we have not seen before? Anybody? What are we warned about that we have not seen before? Germs, right? We can't see germs, but we're warned about them. What else are we warned about that we have not seen? Air. Oh, expand. <laughs> Some people's bad breath. <laughs> you, you can't see it, but when you smell it, you're like, whoo! Unless you put it on a mask and it's your own bad breath. Yes? Wind. Wind, right? Like tornadoes ripping through, blowing things over. Say that again? You're warned. That's true. If the fire alarm went off here, we would have to evacuate. We were warned about something we don't see. Is there anything in scripture that we're warned about that we don't see? Revelation. What about in Revelation? Tribulation. Tribulation, right? We are told that God is going to pour out his wrath on the world. We have not seen that, yet do we believe it? And are we actually being stirred up? Are we moving with godly fear like Mo Moses, Noah did? <laughs> I keep messing myself up. What else are we? Uh, yes. Hell. Hell. We haven't seen hell, right? But we're warned about it. Anything else? Like spiritual warfare. Yeah, spiritual warfare. Demonic stuff. We kind of see TV's rendition of it in these goose, uh, ghost, goose, I was going to say goosebump. Um, goose, goosebumps. Uh, that used to be an old TV show. Um, but they used to have those TV shows about ghosts and something would move and they're like, oh, oh my gosh, there's a ghost here. Like, we're warned about things we have not seen. My question is, do we believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus can come back at any moment and take his bride, his church, up to be with him in heaven? I think if we did believe it, we would respond differently. We would act differently because our beliefs dictate our behavior. And I think sometimes we don't sing in a service because we don't believe the words that we are singing. 
I was sharing with the leaders in our leadership meeting last night um, about this teacher that I listened to, Howard Hendricks. I've, I've shared his name before. But he said he went to this conference one time. He went to a pastor's conference. And early in the morning, they were having a prayer meeting. And so he goes, you know what? I'll go to the prayer meeting. And he went to this prayer meeting. And he goes, he told people he's talking to, I had to do something for the first time ever that I've never done. He goes, I walked out of a prayer meeting. He was like, I walked out of that prayer meeting because this room full of pastors, the way they were praying, it was so filled with unbelief. He had to go up to his hotel room, get into the word of God and cleanse his heart and his mind. Pastors and people in ministry can get into ruts where we pray and say things that we really don't genuinely mean or feel. We're no different from you. Or when we pray, is it with a heart full of faith? When we worship, is it actually because we are singing to God alone? And it doesn't matter who's sitting next to us and if we're cracking in our voice or saying the wrong lyric or something like that. I pray that God would just pour out upon us a heart that is fully confident in his abilities. In verse 12, it says, 40 days and 40 nights it rained. 40 days and 40 nights. The number 40 is associated with testing and purification, especially before entering into something new and significant. For example, Moses was on the mountain, Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights with God, talking with him. And he came down and his face glowed. The children of Israel wandered the wilderness for 40 years being tested. And God did this to reveal their hearts. And their hearts were ugly. Elijah, 40 days and 40 nights, he walked to Mount Sinai. Jesus even was tested for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before he started his ministry. You and I, receive spiritual tests. And sometimes we pass them, sometimes we don't. Let's move on to verses uh, 13 to 16. It says this, And on the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons were with them, entering the ark. They and every beast uh, after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. So that's penguins, chickens, you name it. Um, verse 15. And when they entered the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh in which is the breath of life, so... Also, they entered male and female of all flesh and went in as God commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. I want to focus on verse 16 here when it says the Lord shut him in. The idea behind this is they created this massive door that Moses, Moses, I keep saying, Noah could not shut himself. And so God, when everybody was in, all the animal and Noah's family was in the ark. 
God himself closed the door behind them. The NLT says, and the Lord closed the door behind him. See, God protected Noah and his family. This is God staying true to his word that he would deliver them and keep them alive through the mist of the storm. Can you imagine? I don't, the Bible doesn't say this, but Noah for a hundred years has built this ark. And all of a sudden it starts to rain. The floodwaters start to come up from the earth. I wonder if people started going to Noah and saying, let us in, please let us in. And they started panicking and screaming, saying, don't leave us out here to die. It's very possible that had happened. But God stayed true to his word and kept Noah and his family alive. Those whom God protects, they never have to fear anything. If God's on our side, who do we have to fear? God is with us. It also says in Psalm 29, verses 10 through 11, And the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord who sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And I believe Noah, his family, all the animals in the ark were blessed with this peace on the ark. And then in verses 17 through 23, sorry, through 24, it says this. Now the flood was on the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark was moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, in all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died, and he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things, the bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 140 days. Sorry, 150 days. So, the water increases intensely, starts moving the ark around, and everything starts to die. All the animals, all the cute little bunnies, all the cats, hallelujah, um, all those animals start to drown and the people. Now, I want to remind you, the purpose of the flood was because humanity was so wicked and so evil that God says, I'm going to start over with, cre with creation. And I'm going to start with this new family and start from there. It was so evil that God had to judge their wickedness. And so God destroyed everything that had the breath of life in them. And the water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. You guys think you guys had it bad in quarantine? You got it nothing compared to Noah. 
They're confined to an ark that's only 450 feet long. You can only go so many places. There's no Starbucks. You can't get fast food. There's no uh, Grubhub to deliver. You're stuck with all these stinky animals. They're eating. They're going to the bathroom as well. Confined to this space. For 150 days. Yes. How did Noah's kids have kids? What do you mean? If you need to have that conversation with your parents, you can have that conversation with them. (laughs) (laughs) Would they have to marry their cousins? There was a lot of people on the earth during this time. A lot of people. We have no idea who they were related to or what. The Bible doesn't say. Exactly how long it was they were alive before God flooded the whole earth. It could have been at least a thousand years. At least a thousand years for sure. So humanity populated a lot. So they died. So how would they? They brought their wives on the boat. Yes. How would their children? All related. We'll talk about that another time. (laughs) So, but that is a good question, and I'll answer that later on. Um, So, the earth is flooded. God did what He told Noah He would do. He's delivering them through the flood. And destroying mankind. But I have a question to kind of close up this time. Um, and I want some interaction. Is the flood fact or fiction? Is the flood fact or fiction? Fact? Why is it fact, Caden? You know the crazy thing is that I was talking to my grandmother the other day about that. And he said, there's people that actually, biologists actually, when they looked on a mountain, they actually saw fish up there. That when God flooded the earth, it's already proof up there. Actually, that's not proof. Because they have documented storms in the ocean that literally pick up the water and the fish, move it inland, and drop them. There's, uh, if you Google it, there is stories of storms where all of a sudden it starts raining fish on the land. So that actually doesn't prove the flood is real because God can literally take fish and go and drop it over there. So what else can it That's what I'm asking you. Is it fact or fiction, the flood? Yes. Well, it's a fact because everything from the Bible is correct. And if you have correct Bibles... So there's non-correct Bibles? It depends if people cherry-pick with other religions is what I'm saying. Okay. But wait, how do you know that the Bible is real? Because it's... You can't say because it's real. That's not a good answer. Because there's like factual evidence. And, um, the thing is to dig up ancient places. You mean the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah. When yeah? They, they, they've seen other cities that were in the Bible that have been stated are correct. Therefore, if those correct, most likely that everything else is correct. And also the Grand Canyon was made by water, so it had to be a big flood to make the Grand Canyon. So you're saying the Bible is real because of archaeology and the locations. Okay. How else do we know the Bible's fact or fiction? How do we not know if the flood was only just localized? It could have been only in one part of the world and not the whole earth. Do you have something? No? Yes? 
Dinosaurs. <laughs> what about dinosaurs? <laughs> if you look at where all the dinosaurs and stuff died, uh -huh. it says um, they were all killed by some sort of like landslide or something, or a lot of water. But if you look at where all the dinosaurs died all over the world, okay. they all died simultaneously. So technically, that's not true, because hold on, hold on, let me tell you this: Mount St. Helens. If I'm if I'm correct, I could be wrong on the wording. There is a, a volcano that erupted. I think it's called Mount St. Helens. And when that erupted, it had the same effect on all the trees and the life around it. And that's a volcano. Yeah. So technically, if the volcano went off, that same effect could just have it all around the world. So it's not necessarily true that well, the. If you, they, there's a certain species of dinosaurs and some others that were in, like, say, around California and stuff, okay. and then they saw this, or something happened which scared them, and they started running, and they found a lot of their children and stuff, because they couldn't keep up with the adults, and they documented them where, like, all the bones and stuff were left off to, and they ran halfway, like, through California to, like, through other states. Hmm. Escaping it, whatever it was? Dinosaurs and stuff, like, near other areas were running some were running the other direction, so there has to be some sort of big wave or something that killed all of them. Or a volcano. Well, maybe. Anybody else? I was. So if a volcano had exploded of that magnitude, it would create enough ash to actually cover the entire Earth. What if it was a bunch of little volcanoes at different times? A bunch of, well, where are those little volcanoes? I have no idea. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> but then also the thing with the flood and with the dinosaurs, it's actually, that's also very true because um, the state of Utah, mm -hmm. literally, it's like a giant bowl. And it's a hot, and it's a hot spot for archaeological discoveries and finding them. Not to mention you find dinosaurs and other, not dinosaurs, but I guess prehistoric creatures okay. fossilized in there that they consider to be from different eras. But why are they all popping in the exact same spot in the exact same level of sediment at the exact same time? Okay, okay. He's high school. He's high school? And? So, check us out. Addy was on the right path to talk about the Bible, and the prophets talked about the flood, the apostles talked about the flood, and Jesus himself talked about the flood. If the flood is, a, is fiction, then the prophets, apostles, and Jesus himself were all liars. Is Jesus a liar? No. He, we are, exactly. But he is not. So, the flood is fact. And we can trust the Bible because of its historical evidence, its geological evidence, its uh, archaeological evidence. Not only that, here's another way. Did you know more than 200 cultures have their own account of the flood? I was going to say, that's what you're going to say? Native Americans uh, like were always talking about floods and stuff. That is very true. So um, some of the cultures, just to reference them, uh, is the Chinese culture, uh, Egyptians, Greeks, the native Hawaiian islanders, just to name a couple, have a, their own version of the flood and its account. Now, all of them are slightly different, but this, check this out. This was interesting. 88% describe a favored family. So they all kind of agree that there was this one special family. 78% of them uh, attribute the survival to a boat. So they survived through a boat. 
95 say that the Sodom cause was a catastrophic flood. Pretty much all of them agree that there was a flood. 66% say that the disaster was due to mankind's wickedness. 67% record that animals were also saved. And 57% describe that the survivors ended up on a mountain. So other cultures kind of back up the Bible, but we can't use those because those are twisted and tweaked. We know the Bible is true because God wrote it, because of the evidence, because of the accuracy, because of the realism of the flawed failed, uh, um, characters in Scripture. And so this is how we know we can trust and believe the, the flood actually truly did happen. Now, there's more evidence you can look up outside of the Bible. If you go to alwaysbeready.com, if you go to uh, uh, Answers in Genesis, and you guys want to look up some more of those things, I encourage you to do that. That way, when you do get challenged by somebody who knows what they're talking about, you have answers to share with them. So, I'm um, glad we had this discussion.